0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Acazus podcast series. My name is Melinda, and I have a special guest today, Tony Alva. Tony goes without introduction, being the former Minister of Finance in Peru. As a minister, she led the implementation of Peru's economic plan in response to the COVID nineteen crisis. And now we're lucky enough to have her on our team. Hi, Tony, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, hi, Melinda. It's great to have you. I was actually so excited to have this podcast. I have lots of questions to ask you. So let's get started. You were one of the first female ministers in your country, leading the Ministry of Finance through a very difficult period of time with all this COVID crisis. What was it like to be a woman in that position? Tell me about the challenges that you faced.
1: Yes, of course. You know, in fact, uh, this year, Peru's uh, is a 200 years of independence anniversary. And it's quite unfortunate that the country has only had three female ministers till now. I think that being a woman in a high position is definitely challenging in my country. I was appointed minister when I was 34, but that time I already had a decade of experience as a public servant. I had a master's degree in Harvard Kennedy School, and I was in charge of the general bureau of public budget for my country, which is really, really a very important position in the government. So when I was appointed, the immediate reaction of some people was, you know, she's there because she will be the president's puppet. She will be able to say no to him. And other people say that, you know, she's there because
0: her dad is a close
1: friend of the president, and, and neither of those
0: reasons were true, of course. Mm. You know, especially since you had the position of general director of public budget, I imagine you must have had to say no even to him before.
1: Exactly. And, and in fact, in that, pos- in that position, I learned how to say no, because for the authorities, the sky has no limit when it comes to the allocation of budget. However, uh, what they don't understand is that the budget is limited. So I was uh, very used to ministers, congressmen, and even the president of my country asking for a greater share of the budget without even considering the fiscal limitation. So it is here in this, in this position when, where I learned the art of saying no. Of course, always uh, maintaining a respectful and composed tone, i um, of course, backing up my note with technical reasons. So these um, critics about me being like a, a puppet to the president uh, or about my dad being a, a close friend to the president that were uh, not true. What is the message here? The message is that, you know, she was not appointed a minister because of her own merits. And it's important to to consider that in my country, several years before, Fernando Zavala was appointed minister at exactly the same age I was, but nobody doubts his capacity. So I really think that as as women, we have to work double or triple than a man to show that capacities and skills
0: that we have. So how did these inequalities that you're talking about reveal themselves during the COVID crisis personally for you as a minister? I was a
1: minister during the COVID-19 crisis. During that crisis, we prioritized saving lives. We implemented a very aggressive lockdown that made the GDP fall by almost 30% when I was minister of finance. And to respond to that, we put in place the biggest economic package in not just Peru's history, but also in Latin America. For me, it was very important to explain all the situation to the citizens, to explain what were the measures that we were taking from the economic plan. So every time I had an interview, I and mean, I invested lots of time, like probably more than four hours, thinking about what's going to be the message I'm going to address and communicate it to my, to my citizens. I was always thinking about the easiest way to transmit them this challenging uh, situation. And of course, this economic uh, package where I I usually like my benchmark was whatever I said, my grandparents should understand. me, Because you know, like as an economist, it's a huge challenge to uh, speak simply. We are very used to speak very in a complex way. So I really, really took a lot of time preparing my messages I really invested on in trying to communicate very transparently and clearly to, to the citizens of my country. And because of this effort and because of my amazing team, I think I had, I, I gave good interviews. Some friends even told me, you know, Tony, my mom says it's the first time she has understood economics. But at the same time, I was receiving these messages. I will also receive messages like, you know, Tony, the color of your blouse does not match well with your skin, Or you know, Tony, you should wear more makeup because your eye bags are huge. (laughs) So (laughs) I am pretty sure that men are not judged the way women are. So I think that we don't only need to work double or triple, but also we are always being judged for things men are not being judged to.
0: Oh yeah, and we still see this today in almost every country. It is such an issue. There are countless books about this already. And you know, this is a topic about which we could easily do a separate podcast alone. But to get back what you said about how you became a minister at such a young age with all these challenges and lessons, I was wondering that having your public background, what made you decide to join our mission at Acasus? What was your drive when choosing us? As I imagine there have been lots of options.
1: Yes, you know, like in countries as Peru, that is my country where we have such inequalities, it's really a privilege to have the opportunities to access good education and health. That was my case. And I felt I needed to pay back. I found in the public service the correct path to do this because I think that the impact of public servants of people's life is huge. Uh, So all my professional experience before being minister was at the Peruvian Public Service. I I trained myself for that. I started as an assistant when I was 22 years old in the Ministry of Finance and finished as minister at 34 years old. I followed a journey of challenges, failures and achievements. The year when I was minister, where we had the COVID-19 was very, very difficult for me, both professionally and emotionally. At that time, I felt like a minister during a war, seeing how the economy was collapsing and also the daily casualties. Peru was the biggest country with the highest deaths due to COVID-19, so it was really, really strong. But at the same time, we were also facing another pandemic, one of huge political instability that determined that I was impeached twice by the Congress.
0: Mm.
1: So at that point, I concentrate on dealing with everything one day at a time. I also went to sleep every day with the satisfaction that me and my team gave the best we could at the things and that we did things with commitment to our country while staying on the ethical path. And then almost one year ago, I started like every day, I started my working day early at the ministry. And by the end of that day, the president was impeached by the Congress he had to leave office. I was shocked. Mm. The next few weeks were very, very difficult for me. I questioned myself a lot, whether or not all the effort was worth it. For almost four weeks, I did not listen to the news, even though there was a huge political crisis in my country. I did not want to put a lot of pressure on me. In some way, I was in a mourning of sorts. And one of the things I learned during the crisis was that the mental health is really important. So I decided to take one month of vacation and then started to think about my future.
0: Oh, those can be super powerful. So what were the takeaways from that four-week period? What did you get out of this news-free recreational time off?
1: Because of this political crisis and this difficult year for my country, I understood uh, that best for my professional growth was to gain experience outside the country. And then uh, an amazing opportunity in Acasus was there, and I took the leap of faith. I always thought that if you are not in government, Acasus is a great alternative to fulfill your purpose. I had the opportunity to work with Acasus as a client in Peru. And I think that uh, Acasus is a talented team that cares really about the problems that the citizens face. ACASUS also has a unique approach to building capacity in public servants, contributing to sustainability and undertaking interventions which drive progress. I also see the, another huge advantage is that they, are, that they take your professional development very seriously. For example, in my first month here, I was trained in having difficult conversations. Providing feedback to improve your team performance is really critical but can you believe that in the Peruvian government, even though I had held very important roles, I have never been trained in managerial skills? Wow, well, that's not good to hear. Uh, yes, so um, now that I have, I have been working for almost 10 months here, I can tell that ACASUS has the best of the two worlds of the, of the private and of the public sector. You work hard for improving citizens' opportunities, like in the public sector, but at the same time, you don't deal with tough politics. And based on my experience, I can tell you that politics politics, is a huge distractor from real work.
0: Mm, oh yeah, I believe you. And even though we still have to deal with politics on some level, we try and navigate on these waters with the focus on the impact and the way that gets us to the impact, which I also believe is a different point of view. Um, But I like how you said that Acasus has the best of the two worlds. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've done over here at Acasus as you've been working on the rollout of the COVID vaccines with with our teams in in many countries, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Chad, even in DR Congo and, and Ecuador. What are the main differences between countries regarding the vaccine rollout? What would you say are the main differences? Yes, um,
1: I think that there are two important factors that really influence the initial rollout of the vaccines. The first is whether or not the country had a platform for vaccinated adults. This is from an operational side perspective. And the second, very, very important, is the willingness of high level authorities to get their people vaccinated. The compromise of government and leaders with the rollout was really a game changer in these countries. We also see that the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines faces gender gaps in these countries where we have been working. And I think that the biggest challenge is that there are not enough women in high level positions who are better suited to understand challenges that women face. For example, um, other women can understand if you don't feel comfortable with a male vaccinator touching your arm or better understand the damage that rumors about the vaccine causing infertility can make. Women know better how to talk to other women and definitely how to address their concerns and fears. So in some of these countries, when we tried to bring the issue to the table, we realized that most of the people making decisions were men. In one country, we even tried to make the case for implementing female vaccinator centers, completely run by women with female vaccinators this will really be helpful for, for women. But one of the answers we received was that this policy
0: was sexist. Can you imagine that answer? Mm, I don't want to, to be honest. I think, I think it really shows that this is a problem. Totally. And
1: that's why we try to, fo- to shift the focus from supply to demand. You know, uh, having vaccines available, having the supply of vaccines, does not necessarily mean that those vaccines will get to people's arms. And for years, I think that we have only thought about supply. And of course, we have implemented very innovative solutions for supply, for example, cold chain management. But we are not still thinking about demand side. uh, And we are still using uh, demand side approaches from last century. So uh, we have spoken with people and collected that information in a demand tracker. We have visited facilities and spoken with healthcare workers to learn more about their problems. And I think that the concerns that women raise are very valid. They are not female vaccinators. The waiting time for getting the vaccines is too long. So I think that we really need to make the system focus on the last mile of the public service provision that is the demand.
0: Mm. And are there reasons to be hopeful? I mean, from your point of view, how can we overcome these obstacles?
1: You know, I think that the COVID-19 has also brought a lot of learnings about the role of women in leadership positions. Let's think about the New Zealand's prime minister or Angela Merkel. They communicate really well with their population and their leadership has been recognized. So I think that we are winning some battles on this. But I think that things really need to change more aggressively. For instance, let's think about basic issues of The health system. Let's think about maternal mortality. The fact that a health system is not able to avoid a woman dying when she's doing something so inherent to her, like becoming a mother, is really a catastrophic failure. This is a basic emergency that health systems should solve and we need to be focused on solving it. But if you think about the roots of these systems, why we are failing in maternal mortality, you will definitely lead to family planning. The system has denied females the possibility to decide about themselves. We not only do not receive adequate family planning instructions during our lives, but even if you look at the most mainstream method of contraception, the condoms, you realize how it's based on the willingness of the male using it. So I think that we need to be much more aggressive about implementing, for example, modern contraceptive methods. But do you see someone focus on that? Not really. I think that in very unequal societies like Peru or the countries we work on, the most unprivileged do not have a voice and really nobody advocates for them. I have a very concrete example. For instance, I remember that when I was minister, there were rumors that the president was going to ban alcohol to limit social gatherings and avoid the spread of COVID-19. You can't imagine the amount of WhatsApp message I received because of that, Hmm. because of the president banning alcohol. But nobody ever reached out to me about improving learning outcomes in rural areas or about reducing chronic malnutrition in the jungle areas of Peru, for example. I think that we need much more empathy in our societies We need to understand that if we generate more opportunities for the less privileged, everybody will be better off. So I have a lot of hope from the new generation. I think that they are much more committed to social values and they are eager to raise their voice for these invisible populations.
0: Oh yeah, and it's so essential that they actually raise their voices. So talking about the new generation, do you do a lot of work talking to young women about their futures? What is the message that you want to give them? Yes, I,
1: I, I men- as I mentioned before, I, I really think that societies will be better if we have more women in leadership, in leadership positions. But in some ways, societies are still very conservative and we, women, are raised in a way that we have lots of fears and insecurities. Imagine a 16-year-old woman And a man with exactly the same skill and capabilities. I am pretty sure that the boy feels much more secure and empowered at that age than the girl. I totally understand this feeling because I have felt it when I was growing up. So now when I talk to young women, I give them the advice that I wish I received when I was their age. Because of these old insecurities and fears, I think that they are also likely to worry a lot about small things and really get distracted with that. I think that being minister in a crisis has given me a lot of perspective of what is real a problem and what is not. I I remember the time on April last year when the chief economist of my country told me, you know, Tony, we have a problem. The GDP has fell 30%. So that was really, really a problem. Indeed, and not even a small one. I, I think so this perspective about understanding what is a real, a real problem is very important. And, and I also think that women need to be together to open more pathways to other women. When I was appointed general director of budget, I was 32 years old. And there was a huge like, scandal in the public sector because I was too young for the position. I was, in fact, the first woman in that role. And I think that this was a unique situation where both the deputy minister of finance and the minister of finance were women. My direct boss, the deputy minister, was very criticised for appointing me in that position. Mm -hmm. Those were really, really difficult times for me. And a part of me was really, really scared about this new role. But two years after that, when I was appointed minister at 34 years old, I appointed a Yempen Yenpen as my replacement in that position. She was also 32, the same age I had when I was appointed. And nobody doubted uh, her capabilities because of her age, very different to what happened with, with myself. So I think it's a very powerful feeling when you break the glass ceiling and you make space for others to grow out it with you. I think it's difficult for the person that breaks it, but it's worthy when you look at all the amazing women that come after.
0: Mm. I just want a few minutes to, to let this sink in. I mean, it must be really fulfilling to see that your sacrifices cleared the way for others and your efforts have eventually paid off. I think it's a kind of inner fulfillment that even though it might not be recognized immediately out there, but nobody could take this away from you now. I want to talk to you about all of this for a few more hours and a gazillion other things, in fact. But since our time is almost up, let me ask you something I ask everyone on podcasts. And this is a question about your fondest memory so far working with Akasus. What would you say is the, is the best memory so far for you?
1: I, I think it's rela- related to me actual to my actual position here now. I am in in Pakistan supporting the kickoff of a project that aims to improve health outcomes in primary healthcare facilities. I am really really excited to be on the ground for this project, and this is an aspect of of the job I really love. And a funny fact is that because of my physical appearance, people think I am from Pakistan, and it it seems like. Really, lots of Latin Americans look like Pakistanis. And a, a lot of people start talking to me in Urdu, wherever I am, like in the line for boarding a plane to Pakistan or, or even when I am at a grocery store. <laughs> so I think that they, are, they get very confused when I answer in English that I don't speak Urdu. So I I really think I will definitely need to learn some Urdu if I want to stop disappointing
0: so many people. (laughs) I imagine how confused those people must be, but it's also a good thing, I think. So it must feel really good to be able to blend in into a new country and nobody looks at you funny because you're not so obviously from somewhere else. So two sides of the coin, I guess. Anyway, good luck for your learning Urdu. Urdu. But as long as you're still in Pakistan, we had a holiday podcast not too long ago. It was, I think, last year, end of last year. And Zulnash told me about the traditional Pakistani bread pudding, which is said to be delicious. And I also wanted to taste it ever since. So if you get a chance to taste bread pudding, please let me know what it's like, because I'm just so curious.
1: I have also heard about that, but I haven't tried. So I'll definitely do it before I leave Pakistan.
0: (laughs) Okay, deal. Thank you, Tony, for taking the time and sharing all of these insights with us. I think what you said could open new discussions or at least make make people think about what is truly important in a story and maybe even open more ways for compassion and empathy. I really hope it will. So thank you so much. And let's do this again in the future. Let's continue this discussion. Thank
1: you. I really had an amazing time. Bye bye. Thanks.
0: And thank you all for tuning in, especially in these times, let's take Tony's words with us and live a more compassionate life with more empathy and more caring for each other and hearing the other's story as well. So if you want to listen to more podcasts, please feel free to check our Spotify channel. And of course, you can follow us on social media for more content, or you can also check the website. We have loads of reports on the work on the actual work that we do on the field thank you so much for tuning in take care everyone bye